This is episode number 44 with the managing partner at Franchise.Law, Jonathan Barber. Welcome to the Path to Freedom podcast. I'm your host, Wes Barefoot, where it's my mission to help aspiring entrepreneurs and existing business owners take control of their lives and create freedom for themselves through business ownership. Each episode, I'll be exploring the strategies and tactics of other successful entrepreneurs that have created freedom in their own lives while sharing what I'm learning along my own path to freedom. I'm glad you're here. Let's drop in. Before we drop into the episode, a quick message from our sponsor, 919 Marketing. I've worked with 919 Marketing for years and there's no one I trust more with my marketing needs in any of our businesses. I've worked with them in our franchise businesses, in my consulting business. I've worked with them on the franchisor side and I love working with 919 because they take the time to listen. They take the time to understand what it is I'm looking to accomplish through my marketing who I'm trying to reach, and then they help me put a plan together to do just that. I've worked with tons of marketing companies over the years, and too often, it's a one-size-fits-all approach, but not with 919 Marketing. In addition to that, they've developed some amazing technology called 919 Insights, franchising's first and only AI-powered analytics platform. With 919 Insights in place, 919 Marketing can identify the exact topics that matter to your franchise candidates and provide the specific roadmap to help your brand become the highest ranking and most trusted resource when they're searching for answers. So if you're ready to start getting better results from your marketing, and if you want a free demo of 919 Insights, reach out to Graham Chapman at 919-459-8157 or send them an email at gchapman at 919marketing.com to schedule your free demo today. So whether you're a franchisor, a franchisee, or just getting started in your first franchise business, make sure to check out 919 Marketing and tell them West Barefoot sent you. Now, let's drop into the episode. You guys have heard me say on the podcast before that I'm not an attorney, nor do I play one on the radio. But today I do have an actual attorney joining me, a franchise attorney to be more specific. My guest, Jonathan Barber, is managing attorney at Franchise.Law, a franchise firm based out of Charlotte, North Carolina. So I wanted to have Jonathan come on because I've known Jonathan for a while. I get a lot of questions from people that I'm working with you know, related to the legal side of franchising, which is obviously very important if you're a franchisee or if you're considering becoming a franchisee or actively investigating franchises even, you certainly need to have an understanding of the agreement that you would be signing in order to become a franchisee and what you're going to be obligated to under that agreement. So Jonathan brings a very unique perspective in the sense that his firm has hundreds of franchisor clients all over the world across all different types of industries. So he represents franchisors and helps them 
draft their legal documents and their franchise agreements, but he's also represented franchisees as well as other people investigating franchises and reviewed franchise agreements. So with his perspective, he's able to kind of, you know, help us understand the reason that franchisors have their legal documents and their agreements drafted in certain ways, sometimes ways that in many cases for someone investigating a franchise may seem a bit one-sided. But as Jonathan explains in this episode, there you know, are some legitimate reasons in which why franchisors would have their agreement structured that way. So again, just a well-rounded perspective and helps answer a lot of you know, what I see is frequently asked questions when it comes to the legalities of franchising. So definitely some good information in this episode for anyone that's looking at franchises, considering looking at franchises to help with some of these legal questions that are likely to come up as you go through that process. The best part is we managed, I think, to keep this pretty interesting, right? The the legal side of this is not always the most interesting part of discussing franchises, but obviously something that's very important. So uh, I think Jonathan and I did a pretty good job of making this an interesting, entertaining conversation, also with a lot of good information that Jonathan shares. So with that, let's go ahead and drop in with Jonathan Barber. that you'll be able to make the legal side of it a lot more entertaining than probably a lot of franchise attorneys would be able to. So uh, excited to have you on. And like, you know, this is something I've been wanting to do for a while is have someone, you know, with your expertise on the legal side of franchising, come on, because obviously this is uh, a big area that people have questions when they're investigating franchise businesses, considering getting into a franchise. Uh, I know your firm also works a lot with franchisors or businesses that are considering franchising their business. There's a lot that goes into that, you know, especially the legalities of doing it the right way. So uh, definitely going to be cool to get your perspective today. So appreciate you making the time, you know, maybe for those in the audience listening in that aren't familiar with who you are and what you do, give us kind of a little bit of background on yourself and uh, you know, what you and your firm specialize in. Yeah, thanks. So, um, I am a partner at Franchise.Law. We're a law firm headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, representing franchise clients everywhere, though. Um, I have been practicing franchise law now for five years, and uh, my law partner, longer than that, uh, he doesn't like me to say how much longer than that. (laughs) A good uh, bit longer, it sounds like. A good bit longer, yeah. Um, but a little bit of history. So he he was a partner at a, another law firm. I had graduated from law school and passed the bar, and he hired me right out of law school as an nice. associate. Uh, they don't teach franchise law in law school. They they really don't teach any of those specialized areas. I was going to ask you about that if if that was like an option that you had to specialize in in law school. I wish, man. I I wish I could have spent more time learning about it. But uh, but you know I. I dove right in as an associate working with him and really learning the ropes. I started off doing FDD reviews. Um, yeah. The first FDD that I ever reviewed was for Burn Boot Camp. Um, was it really? They're yeah, Charlotte too, yeah. right? Yeah, and it was probably it was probably one of their first like twenty five or thirty franchisees, and I think they're up at like four hundred units now. Yeah, they're huge. Like they've they've grown like crazy. Yeah. So I, I still remember that was the first one that I, I had ever done. And um, I, I probably spent like 
five, six hours looking over the FDD, <laughs> figuring out where everything was and, and whatnot. But um, so that was kind of my crash course in, in franchising. And yep. uh, Jason had been doing exclusively franchising for uh, the better part of a decade at that point. Okay. Um, so he really, really taught me everything that I knew about it. And sometime after that, uh, we left that firm, um, thought we could run a better firm, um, wanted to taste some of that freedom that you there talk you about. Yep. And, love uh, it. and so we, we started um, our own firm together, uh, still based in Charlotte, and really, really took off from there um, just doing franchise work. And uh, like, I, like you had hinted at earlier, representing franchisors, we, mm-hmm. we have kind of a, a strong client base of franchisors, but do a little bit of franchisee work as well. Yep. And um, just really deeply networked in the industry. And it's a really cool industry to be a part of. It really is. I mean, and, you know, I talk to a lot of people involved in franchising on the podcast and it always comes up when you're talking with someone else that's in franchising, like how, how small of a world it is. I mean, there's, thousands upon thousands of franchise companies out there. And then on top of that, you've got, you know, firms and vendors that support franchises in a variety of ways. So, I mean, you know, probably tens of thousands of organizations that are in some way or another involved in franchising, but yet it is such a small tight knit community. And it's like, once most people get into it, they're kind of hooked. Like you don't see many people that get into franchising and then they leave to go do something else. So it's cool and it's it's interesting, you know, how you guys have really kind of carved out this specialty in franchising. Why why do you think like in law school franchising is not a specialty that you can study cuz I mean like I went to business school and f- the word franchising was probably never even mentioned in yeah. in business school like and I think there's a couple schools across the country that have like a franchising program as part of their business school but it's not it's not common. And when you kind of zoom out and look at it, franchising is such a prevalent part of our economic system, yet no one talks about it in school, whether you're going to law school or business school or whatever. I'm just curious what your thoughts are, why that, why that's the case. Well, I think law school in general, it doesn't really teach you how to be a lawyer. Yeah. It teaches you how to take tests really yeah. well. Yeah, same and with business so they, school. Yeah, they want you to graduate, pass the bar exam, and become a lawyer because if you don't pass the bar exam, that looks really bad for them. Right. So yeah. They really, I mean, for three years, you're learning everything that's going to be on the bar exam from yeah. real estate to general business law, contracts, constitutional law, uh, you know, which has been really, really funny to know during the past like four or five months. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I bet that's, it's interesting to have a little more knowledge than the average person uh, these days on yeah. constitutional law. <laughs> <laughs> I did not do very well in constitutional law back in law school, but, uh, but I did do all my business law classes. So, there you go. And here we are. Yeah, I just don't think that they they really get into into those niche areas. But I mean, you have such a valid point. Franchising is so huge that it, it you can't even really call it a niche. No, you know, no, it's so a many sector. Entrepreneurs in our country, they are franchise owners. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I don't know what the most current numbers are, but like if you look at the total number of not just franchise owners, but people that are employed by franchisees, all the jobs they create. I mean, it's a significant part of like the GDP. Um, so it's, it's just always been interesting to me that it's not, you know, talked about more. I mean, you know, when I connect with people that 
are interested in, you know, kind of learning more about franchising, see if owning a franchise could be a good fit for them. Like the common person, when they hear franchising, they think of like fast food restaurants and they don't, they don't even a lot of times recognize or realize that, yeah, sure. Food is a very big sector within franchising, but there, I mean, franchising is in just about any industry you can think of. Um, so it's just, it's not very common knowledge, but yeah, you know, like business school is the same. Like, uh, I, it hit me at some point, you know, in, in business school is like literally every one of my professors is a lifelong educator. Like I, and I was like a marketing emphasis. I was like, none of these professors have ever even done marketing for a, a an actual company. <laughs> like they've yeah. just, all they've done is teach and like you get some good stuff from that, but you don't really learn how to like conduct business until you get or out if there. They and, did have experience. It was at like fortune 500, you know, I was one in like a team of like sure. 500 people at this yeah. mega company. Yeah, exactly. Not don't like have any small, kind of business. small business. No. Yeah. yeah. So I, I don't know. It's kind of interesting, a little, little segue there, but so, you know, you, you guys are deep into to franchise law. Um, I mean, maybe give us kind of like the, the franchise law for dummies, like rundown real quick. So like when you say franchise law, what does that entail? Yeah, franchise law is this crazy mix of contract law, securities, regulation, real estate, intellectual property, mm-hmm. licensing is also in there. It's, it's all kind of thrown together into this thing we call franchise law. But really all you have to know is that the Federal Trade Commission created the federal franchise law mm-hmm. that came up with the 23 items of the FDD and what has to be in them, what can't be in them, all the item 19 rules and everything, mm-hmm. the 14-day disclosure period. A lot of these, these quote-unquote basics of franchising, they, they come from that rule. Uh, yeah. which was last changed in like 2008, 2009. Um, and before that, I, I mean, it, it came about in like the 70s. I think. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought it was the 70s because before that, like before the FTC was actually regulating franchising, it was kind of <laughs> just like the Wild West, wasn't it? Like yeah. you could yeah. you could say just about anything as a franchisor to try to convince someone to buy your franchise and i can yeah, only imagine really there were self franchises back then <laughs> yeah right i can only imagine there were a lot of disappointed franchisees you know once they got started realizing you know maybe they got sold a bill of goods yeah yeah for sure so i mean you have the federal rule and then you have these 15 or so um franchise registration states that have yep. essentially their own version of the federal rule in their state statutes um, but they they tack on all kinds of nuances. And so that's kind of what we have to specialize in is obviously navigating the federal rule, but then navigating those different state laws. As sure. Well. Yeah, because if you're working with a franchisor that is planning to franchise, you know, say their goal is to eventually have franchisees in all 50 states, you need to be able to help guide them through you know, having the documentation that they need. So you, you referenced an FDD earlier, that's short for a franchise disclosure document, but then they're going to have to have a slightly different version of their franchise disclosure document for these different registration states. So I, I, I assume that's a big part of what you guys are helping your franchise or clients do is, you know, if they're new to franchising, create their franchise disclosure document in the first place. And then, you can explain it better than I can, but every franchisor has to refile their FDD annually. So that's a whole process. And, and so I'm sure that's a lot of what you're helping with as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. So they, they do, they have to be registered in any of these 15 or, or a little bit more registration states uh, before they can sell a franchise to anybody in those states. Right. And then they have to renew those filings each year if they're going to keep selling in those states. And then if they make any changes to the FDD in the middle of the year, they have to file it in those states. And, um, and then some of those states are kind of on a 12 month basis, but the FDD still expires by April 30th. And it's this whole web of complexity that uh, I, I love it. I think it's, it's really interesting and other people are just kind of really they glaze over real fast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what I would say is thank God for people like you that do love it, that can uh, kind of dumb it down for those of us that uh, maybe don't love the legalities of it as much, uh, or at least, you know, get into the complexities of it as much. But, you know, it's, it's important, right? I mean, talk a little bit to me about why, why it is important for, you know, a, a regulatory agency like the FTC to get involved in franchising you know, why is it beneficial that franchisors and franchisees and even prospective franchisees, you know, have to kind of endure all of these legalities to go about conducting franchise business? Why is it a good thing? Yeah, the whole thing is a headache for franchisors, but it's at the end of the day, the FTC rule and all these state franchise laws are consumer protection acts. Yeah. So they are enforced by usually the attorney generals in each of these states and um, they have huge divisions and the whole goal is to protect consumers, which are the franchisees. Mm -hmm. um, so they, they make the franchisor disclose all of these minute details so that the franchisee or the prospective franchisee is fully put on notice of everything that's going to be involved in the franchise offering right. from day one, um, including, you know, just to take an example, like litigation, mm -hmm. um, you've got yeah. to disclose all your litigation generally for the past 10 years. So the FTC and all these States believe that, um, that the, that litigation when disclosed can influence a prospective franchisee in making their buying decision, yep. which is largely true. Yeah. Um, so they say that you know, there's penalties if you sell a franchise without disclosing that litigation. Yeah. And so they, well, they ultimately exist to protect the buyers. That's right. Yeah. And it's, it is a good thing. And like, you know, as I'm working with people as they're, so I'm helping them identify and investigate franchise businesses. Uh, I try to like prep them like, Hey, you're going to get this document from the franchisor. It's called an FDD. It's going to look very overwhelming when you first get it. It's like a long legal document, uh, but it's very important and it's in your best interest that you get this document and have the chance to really review it because like you said, it lays out everything like down to very minute details. I mean, and what's good about that is it means that if you, if you're a prospective franchisee, if you're investigating a specific franchise and if you go through the investigative process the right way in a thorough manner, there should really be no surprises on the back end of becoming a franchisee. You know, there's no hidden fees. There's no hidden costs. There's no clauses that you shouldn't already be aware of before you sign on the dotted line where the franchisor is going to come back after the fact and say, oh, by the way, I don't know if we mentioned this or not, but you're actually required to do this or you actually have this fee. Like you, you know all of that up front. So it gives you tons of information that you can process and use with, you know, a lot of other information you're gathering as well 
to determine, you know, if this franchise could be a good investment for you or not. So it, it really is helpful to the the consumer, in this case, the prospective franchisee. I guess you could even argue it's helpful to consumers buying products and services from franchisees because the end result is better educated, more qualified people buying franchises. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it also helps them compare apples to apples. Mm. So if they are looking at three different concepts in the same space, let's say three different burger concepts or something, yeah. Um, but they are concerned about the, um, the, the territory and how that's structured, how much mm. space they're going to get around their burger restaurant yeah. that is going to be protected. They can pull up item 12, item 12, and item 12 from these three different brands and, and compare them right against each other and see what the differences are. Uh, That's a great point. If if there were no need for the FDD and they just had the franchise agreement, just the contract, number one, they're going to have to learn how to read legal documents that that are not written in very very plain English. Then they're going to have to find the territory, which could be worded 50 different ways. And then they're going to have to try to compare. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great point. It is is a better way to kind of compare apples to apples across different concepts that you may be uh, investigating. And, um, you know, I was interested to find, I just found out recently cause I've never really learned a whole lot or I guess, you know, dabbled much in international franchising, but like in, um, in Europe or, or at least in the UK, I know they don't have anything like a, a franchise disclosure document. They're not required to. And I can only imagine that causes, you know, more issues than what we see here in the U S just in terms of, uh, a prospective franchisee not really seeing the full picture before they have to make a decision whether or not to buy into a franchise. Yeah, you'd be real surprised. Uh, Europe, um, we've helped plenty of our clients sell masters in mm-hmm. master franchises for all of China, for all of mainland China. Wow. Um, it's just, I mean, there's, I mean, there, there's an inherent risk because there's no intellectual property safeguards in China. Right. Um, but but you know, they they sell the franchise for the entire the entire territory uh, and then you know it's a master so they're going to grow by units out there but yep. we've done there Middle East we've done a lot in the Middle East as well and, interesting uh, and some in Africa wow and uh, plenty plenty of work in Canada too we usually work with co counsel in Canada because they they have a pretty robust. Uh, franchise structure of, of yeah. the laws up there, but and they have the equivalent places. of an FDD. It's it's different though. I know it's laid out differently. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely a little different, but um, but it's it's easy actually to convert. Like I've worked with Canadian brands coming down here to the U.S., and I can largely get most of the information I need for their U.S. FDD from their Canadian one. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's interesting, but like what, what are some, you know, I guess examples of like key information that someone could expect to find in an FDD, especially that's going to be helpful in them, you know, making an educated decision on, you know, whether or not a franchise business may be right for them. You mentioned item 19 earlier. Um, Give us in your opinion, a few of the, I don't know, maybe most critical sections or, or types of information that one could expect to find in an FDD. Yeah. So, I think a lot of people have a pretty good idea of what the fees are when they're getting into it. They know the franchise fee, the royalty fee, the brand fund for contribution marketing fund fee, or yeah. 
Um, they, they usually also know what the local advertising requirements are, but I always direct people to look deeper into item six because mm. you're going to see all kinds of fees that could come up during the, the term of their franchise agreement, such as additional training. Mm -hmm. um, if, if they see that the franchise or can just require them to complete additional training at any time for whatever reason, and it's going to cost them 500 bucks a day to do it. Yeah. That's, that's a little open-ended, right? Sure. <laughs> um, yeah. But there's other stuff in there like, uh, like non-compliance fees, default fees, liquidated damages, all kinds of things that they need to at least just get through that table. It's not a very complicated table to walk through. Yeah, that's good. Cause I mean, usually in an item six, it's going to be a table and you're going to have like your royalties and your marketing contribution kind of right up there at the top, but yep, it's a good right point. Like, yeah, go, <laughs> but go through the whole thing because like when I used to work for franchisors doing franchise development, I would take people through, you know, our franchise disclosure document, make sure they understood kind of what's there. If they had any questions, do my best to clarify. And uh, I would kind of break down item six, that table is like, look, these are the fees that you're going to have, right? They're, they're always going to be there. But then usually it's like kind of that bottom section. These are the if then scenarios, right? You yeah. won't necessarily have these, but if this situation arises, then this is what you could expect from a, a fee standpoint. Yeah, exactly. So I, I always tell them to look a little bit closer at that. Mm -hmm. Um, I tell them to look at the notes to item seven. Item seven's got great information in the table, but they, they add additional information in the notes that can sometimes be very helpful. Very clarifying, so yeah. A, yeah, for like a retail space um, or a retail type of concept, they're gonna see that the estimated lease deposit is this range in the table, but then they can go down to the footnotes and see, okay, this is for a location that's between 1,000 and 2,000 square feet. Yeah. Uh, just additional things like that that they can extrapolate. Uh, so, so for those, note, sorry to interrupt, but for those not, uh, for those listening that may not know, explain what item seven is. Like what is, what is item seven giving you in an FDD? Yeah. So item seven is the estimated initial investment and it'll have the estimated initial investment so not the total lifetime investment but the, the essentially the startup costs yep. for one unit and then if there if there's a multi-unit offering it'll have a separate table showing what the startup costs for that uh two pack or three pack under a multi-unit deal would look like so those and are gonna be like primarily your franchise fees costs. yep yeah so it's the franchise fee, um, initial training costs. Uh, Sometimes the technology or software licensing fee. Yep. Yeah. And so it, it, it generally will include these startup costs for the first three months. Yep. So it'll show like a, an, an estimated rent expense for like the first three months um, after they sign on the dotted line. Yeah. The way I explain item seven, I'd be curious, you know, to, to your uh, legal expertise if this is a good explanation and I was like item seven is basically giving you a range of not only what it costs you to become a franchisee what it would likely cost you to get your business open and then also they're going to specify you know a certain amount of time that you're also accounting for operating capital that you need to, to operate the business and for for different businesses that that amount of time will be different it could be three months I've seen six months 
I think I've even seen 12 months in some cases, if it's like a, you know, a business model that's expected to have a much longer kind of ramp up. But that's, that's kind of how I explain it to people. Cause I have found that some people, they see that range, whatever it is. And it's, it's daunting because they're, they're looking at that thinking I've got to like write a check for some dollar amount in this range just to become a franchisee. And that's not what that range is, is really telling you. Yeah, it's tough. And, and most franchisors, many of my clients included, will leave a lot of buffer yeah. on the top end of that range because yeah. they don't want to get sued. You know, sure. Yeah. Because if, if it costs you more. Is, yeah. If the range is 200 to 400,000 and it costs you 600,000 to get your, your location up and running, then you're going to, you know, yell at them and complain about why it costs so much more than what you were disclosed with. That's right. And they'll just make it 200,000 to 750,000. Um, yeah. Just they, to be safe. Especially. Yeah. in the restaurant space, it's tough um, yeah. because I, I've got a client right now that we just issued their FDD out in Southern California, a real cool food concept. Um, and they've got five or six locations, but uh, they've got a couple that are in like a 1500 square foot space. And then they've got another one that's in like a 3,500 square foot space. It's more of like a flagship type of mm-hmm. store. And, um, so, so we had some fun going back and forth on their item seven table with kind of bringing it down to what is the average franchisee going to get? Because there, there is a reasonableness standard. I mean, I've, I've represented people buying franchises in New York, in New York City, actually, and their costs are going to be almost twice what the item seven table says. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, that's another thing that makes it tough, I would think, to come up with that range because you do have to account for different parts of the country where costs are going to be more expensive, like a New York City, uh, Southern California, you know, some of these larger markets, the real estate's more expensive. I mean, pretty much any cost you're likely to have to get the business up and running is going to be more than it would be in like North Carolina where we are. Yeah, exactly. As I was helping them put this uh, table together, I was looking at the rent expense. I was like, are you seriously paying that much for rent? Yeah. Yeah. Like, Oh my God, how much does a, how much does a burger cost? $23? Like just to, yeah, right? <laughs> just to be able to cover your costs. I was like, um, listen, you guys should move this thing out here to Charlotte. You could probably you know, twice your net uh, revenue at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly, man. It's crazy. Uh, the, the living expenses in some of these areas, but so like how would a franchisor go about coming up with this item seven range? Are they using, historical data based on other locations, whether it's corporate owned locations or other franchise locations. They're not just like shooting in the dark here for the most yeah, part. So right? that's, that's actually right where I was going to go when I was talking about the notes is that the last note will actually say where they've gotten that data from. Mm. And it's usually based on their own experience opening, opening corporate locations, especially startups. Yeah. Um, but then after they've got a number of franchisees under their belt, then they'll add in that they got it from, um, from their franchisees as well. And uh, I, I know a number of my franchisors, um, they actually have it written into their franchise agreements that within 120 days after the franchisees open, they have to submit a report to the franchisor of all their startup costs that were involved. Interesting. So that when we go and update the FDD, we can use that data to tweak item seven. That's smart. I like that because I was actually, um, so we have some good friends of ours here in Wilmington right now that are looking at a franchise business that I introduced them to. And my wife and I own a couple of franchises. So we were like having dinner with them the other night and 
the question came up, they were like, how, how do they get this range in, in item seven? And I was like, well, you know, it's based on historical experience from the franchisor and from franchisees. And my wife kind of chimed in and she's like, you know, no one from our franchisors has ever reached out to us and, and asked for like a, a detailed breakdown of what all of our expenses were to, to get our businesses up and running. But I, I think it's a good thing that franchisors would actually build that into their agreement that you're required to submit that information because it's going to keep them accurate as they keep rolling out new FDDs. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's cool. Wes here. You may have noticed there's a franchising theme to this podcast. And that's because franchising's had a massive impact on my life. And it's the very reason I'm walking my own path to freedom. In fact, one of my companies is a franchise consulting company where I work with people to help them understand franchising and determine if it might be a good fit for them. And if it is something they want to explore, then I help them navigate the entire investigative process and ultimately find a franchise business that's a great match for them. You know, the fact of the matter is there are thousands and thousands of franchise businesses out there today. And like anything, there are good ones and there are bad ones. Even out of the many, many great franchise companies, not every one of them would necessarily be a good fit for you. You know, buying a franchise is a huge decision and you don't want to wing it. I've helped many people buy franchise businesses over the years, and my wife and I have bought and owned franchises today, and we plan to keep investing in franchise businesses. I love helping people understand this process and help them find a business that's going to be a great fit for them and help them accomplish their goals and ultimately create that freedom in their life that we're all looking for. The best part of all of this is that my services are free to the people I work with, and while I do love to contribute to charities and other great causes, I'm not a nonprofit. I'm compensated by the franchise companies I work with when I introduce them to someone that ends up becoming one of their franchisees. It's very similar to real estate, but with franchises. I have the privilege of working with hundreds and hundreds of the best franchise companies out there across practically every industry. So I can be absolutely confident that when I recommend someone to look at a franchise company, I'm introducing them to a very credible and proven company with a solid business model and great support. So if you think you might be interested in learning more about franchising and seeing if it might be right for you, I'd love to speak with you. Get in touch with me by email at wes at path2freedom.com, path, the number two, frdm.com. And also check out my website at pathtofreedom.com, spelled the same way, where I've got a ton of resources, both franchise and non-franchise related, that will help you start down your own path to freedom. And of course, subscribe to and follow the podcast for more great advice about business ownership. And if you know anyone else that might be interested in speaking with me, please share this podcast with them. Thanks for listening to my shameless plug. Now let's drop back into the episode. Talk a little bit about item 19, because that's always a very popular uh, section within the FDD. Yeah, item 19. Everybody buying franchises jumps right to item 19. They <laughs> I, I do. Numbers. If I look at a new FDD, I'm going straight to item 19. And, and then I'll go back and you know, look at the other stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You jump right to the... Right to the uh, Show yeah. me the money. I'll say, you look right for the bacon on the sandwich. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> show me the, the money. Part? Yeah. <laughs> so, 
Uh, item 19, I, I don't know how franchise or sell franchises without item 19, but they've got it's people tough. drinking the Kool-Aid that, and in a good way, you know, not, not yeah, in a bad yeah. way. If they love the concept, they understand there's, there's usually no data to show up for item 19, but they, they yeah. recognize a hot opportunity. So there's more risk involved. But item 19, from a drafting perspective, um, the, the golden rule for including well, I guess let me give some context for the listeners. Item 19 is where you're going to find the financials. Yep. And that is the, the financial performance representations, or we sometimes call them FPRs in the industry, mm-hmm. uh, will all be in item 19. And the FTC rule says that you cannot talk about any financial data, make any representations whatsoever to a prospective franchisee unless those representations are in item 19. Yep. So a franchisor cannot tell a prospect about gross revenue unless item 19 of the FDD that they provided them says anything about gross revenue. Um, but then even, even past that, once they put gross revenue in item 19, they can't just talk about operating costs and net profit, EBITDA, all that stuff has to be in item 19 for the franchisor to be able to talk about it with the prospective franchisees. Well, and it even has to be, you know, like uh, it's got to be current, right? So like, because usually like not all franchisors, but usually they're going to in this item 19 chart, they're going to give you like a breakdown of the franchisees whose information is included in there. Um, And it all has to be franchisees that were open for the entire calendar year prior to that year's FDD. If I'm explaining that right, you probably have a better way of explaining that. It's not necessarily the calendar year as much as they they have to have been open during the time period measured. Um, Ah, For example, I work with one franchisor who uh, it's it's, uh, very, very tied to like the school year. And so their item 19 actually runs from June through July. Okay. Um, Still a 12 month period. Um, I've, I've worked with other franchisors who, uh, we've included six month data actually, which is, it's real fun. Most of the state examiners at the registration states, they want to see a full year of data. However, there's a nuance in the law, um, where you can slip in six month data. And so I've, I've argued with a couple of them like Maryland and I've gotten stuff in and it's usually Maryland's fun, aren't they? is a freaking nightmare, but, um, <laughs> but it's, it's real cool when you kind of point out the law and say like, no, this is reasonable and they have to accept <laughs> and it. And they're like, like oh, okay, okay, fine. Yeah, um, but so it's whatever <laughs> the time is tired of me by that point. They just approve it. Hey, that, that's a good attorney right there. You, you either, uh, just annoy them until they agree with you or, you know, prove them by the letter of the law. But, uh, so like whatever the time period is specified, any franchise that they include their data had to have been open for that entire time period. So like a franchisor, you know, we're in 2021, but most franchisors don't have their 2021 FDDs out yet at the time that we're recording this. So they're going off of data that's in their FDD from 2020, which in most cases is probably 2019 financial information, right? So if a franchisor is talking to a prospective franchisee, they really shouldn't even say something along the lines of, you know, hey, we had a new franchisee that opened in November of last year and they're crushing it. They did 40 grand in sales in their first month. Even if gross revenues in the FDD, 
they can't use that specific example because that franchisee's data is not included in the FDD. Yeah, so it's it's real tough. Um, generally, like you had said, most franchisors will go off of the preceding calendar year. So when we're updating FDDs right now, because they all expire generally by April 30th. Mm -hmm. So we're updating them all right now and we're including financial data from January 1st, 2020 through December 31st, 2020. And when you pick your period of time, you have to include all of your franchisees that were open during that entire period of time. Yep. Um, so it will not include somebody that opened February 1st of 2020 or June 1st of 2020, even if they totally crushed it. um, You you can't line them up and show their revenue data against franchisees that are open for that entire period of time. Um, Now, right now it's really interesting because there are plenty of franchisees that temporarily closed at various points during 2020 or they closed and didn't open back up or, or you know, all kinds of crazy scenarios do the pandemic. Oh God, I can so only imagine. a real fun time. Yeah. Now we're getting item 19. Oh, so I can only imagine. They use it as an opportunity to exclude, um, you know, franchisees that they, they wouldn't want to show anyway. Uh, the other, the other rule is so they, they all have to be open at the same period of time, but then they all have to generally be in line with the model of the franchise. So going back to the restaurant example, if your restaurant is between 1,000 and 2,000 square feet and out of your 20 franchisees last year, 19 of them were, um, were you know, in that spot, but you've got one guy that did 4 million in gross revenue, had a 4,000 square foot space, huge patio on a lake with boats <laughs> and everything. Yeah. Like that guy is not a, 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 a representation of what a perspective franchisee could expect to make. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you would state in the intro to item 19 during fiscal year 2020, we had 20 franchisees open. We've included data from 19 of them. We had this one franchisee who did not fit the franchise model, had a much larger unit, whatever. And we have excluded their financial data. Yeah. So then you, your, your, prospective franchisees who are going to open this smaller type of location, most likely they can. Right. Yeah. And that makes sense. You know, it's, it's cause the, the whole point of an item 19 is to give a prospective franchisee some insight into what the earning potential is in the business, right. Or what the financial opportunity is. So like you said, legally a franchisor cannot, they, the, the terminology is they can't make anything that would be considered an earnings claim, right? They can't say, hey, Jonathan, if you buy this franchise, like for sure, you'll break even in, you know, your first nine months, you know, you can expect to have 20% plus net margins. Uh, you know, this is the type of gross revenue that you should, because a, a franchisor can't guarantee that. Just like your stockbroker can't guarantee that you'll get a certain return on an investment. And with a franchise, there's a lot of variables at play that are going to determine how financially successful the business is. And at the end of the day, the franchisee is probably the biggest variable, right? So the franchisor can't control whether the franchisee follows the system and executes on the things that they need to, to be successful. So that's why legally the franchisors can't make these earnings claims. What they can do is give you factual data to, to help you kind of piece together 
what the opportunity is. So item 19 plays a big role in that. It's not the only way that someone investigating a franchise can learn about the, the financial opportunity, but it's kind of like the starting point. Would, would, would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I would. And I think past that, the greatest thing is validation. Yeah. Calling yep. other franchisees. I mean, I could totally tell it's where you're going with the conversation yeah. too. Cause I mean, there's only so much that the franchisor can say because they are bound by the FTC rule. Yep. Well, the FTC rule we had talked about and all the state franchise laws, none of them are binding upon existing franchisees. As long as they're not like affiliate locations or they don't have any kind of joint ownership with the franchisor, yeah. they can talk about anything. Yep. Uh, they, they can say, yeah, listen, day one, this is my revenue. Day two, this is my revenue. Day three, this is how much margin I made on all my hamburgers, right? Yeah, they can, they exactly. can get into everything. They, but that's, that, there's two sides to that. They can, they can say great things about the franchise or they could be like, no, their assistance was horrible. It sucks. Yeah. I hate these guys. <laughs> yeah. I did it all on my <laughs> own. I'd, I'd be doing way better without them. Um, but yeah, I mean, but that's like, I tell people like, you know, talking to the franchisor is good, right? You're going to get a ton of good information. You're going to kind of learn how the business works, how they support their franchisees. Like you're going to learn the the nuts and bolts from them, but talking to other franchisees, what's usually referred to as validation, like that's by far the most valuable step in this whole process of investigating a franchise. Cause you're actually talking to people that are operating the business and they can validate everything that you're hearing and learning from the franchisor, right? Because like you said, franchisees are going to shoot you straight. If there's something that they're not happy about that the franchisor is doing, they're going to let you know, right? If there's mm -hmm. something that the franchisor does amazingly well, they're going to let you know, and the franchisee can share more detailed financial information specific to their business that you're not going to be able to get from the franchisor. The caveat to that is, like all things in life, not every franchisee is created equally. So any franchise system is going to have a bell curve. They're going to have top performers. They're going to have underperformers. They're going to have everything in between. So you could talk to 10 franchisees from one business, talk to two that are just absolutely crushing it. Their numbers are phenomenal. You could talk to two that are really sucking wind. They may not even make it. And then you're going to talk to some that are, you know, anywhere in between. So the art of kind of going through this is, taking the information available to you in item 19. You also have to understand other information in the FDD, your startup costs, your ongoing expenses, doing some modeling usually to kind of figure out how the economics of the business work and then learn from the franchisees that you're talking to, but expect you're not going to get the exact same answers to, to your financial questions from every franchisee that you talk to. You're going to have to really understand what are the most successful franchisees doing? What are the less successful franchisees doing? What are the, the key characteristics that they have in common? And then you kind of have to look in the mirror and say, who am I more likely to operate like? Uh, what I've learned about these successful franchisees and, and uh, what, or what I've learned about the, the less successful ones. So, you know, it's, it's, just, it's not so black and white as a lot of people seem to like to think that it is. You know, like when I was doing franchise development, I'd get on the phone with people sometimes and they'd be like, so tell me how much money I can make in this business. And I'd be like, well, this is not going to go very far. I can already yeah. tell that, <laughs> you know, because it's like, yeah. it's not that easy. 
uh there's there's kind of the same thing when someone comes to me to franchise their business and they say how how much money can i make selling franchises and i'm like we shouldn't (laughs) talk any further like you don't make money selling franchises you make money having successful franchisees that's how this works exactly yeah Uh, (laughs) yeah yeah like this is going to be short-lived but yeah so i mean there's an art to to kind of using all of the information available to you including what's in the fdd including other information you'll get from the franchisor talking to franchisees. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's a pretty complex process that, uh, it's, it's not something that you should go through in a couple of days. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's why there's the 14 day waiting period that you, you at least have to wait 14 days before you can sign a franchise agreement or pay anything after you get the FDD. Um, because, Back before the federal franchise laws, you know, you could sit down with a guy, get a franchise agreement. He could show you, you know, the, the dog and pony show and you sign right there on the spot, pay him your money. And you don't really know what's under the hood and yeah. don't have any time to do your full due diligence on the opportunity. So it goes back yeah. to what I was saying, consumer protection. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, any, any other like sections of an FDD that you really recommend people spend more time with? Um, I mean, like item 19 is kind of a no brainer. Most people are going to spend a lot of time looking at that. Any other sections that, that, I mean, obviously it's all important, right? But Hmm. uh, any other sections that you find some people tend to kind of overlook that you think they should spend more time researching? Yeah, I think a lot of people glaze over item 17. I really like item 17 because it is a summary of key provisions of the franchise agreement. Mm -hmm. And it's everything from your term. You need to know how long your term is going to be. Is it going to be 10 years, five years, renewal terms? Are you getting any, are you getting any renewal terms? If so, how long are they? How many are you getting? Right under that, it jumps into the requirements for renewal. Do you have to sign a new franchise agreement, release the franchisor, pay a fee, um, and on and on and on all the, yeah. I think there's 20, 24, 25 rows of yeah. very important stuff. That's a good point. Um, Hey, question just popped into my mind for you. Cause I know when I was doing development and, you know, reviewing FDDs with people, this would come up a lot in terms of renewals, like most franchisors, it, you know, whether it's a five-year term or a 10-year term, let's just say it's a five-year term. Uh, and let's say that the FDD specified that, you know, you'd have the option for three subsequent renewals. I forget exactly what the, the terminology usually is. I would get the question a lot, like well, what happens after so that'd be 15 years, right? At, at, or I guess 20 years with three options to renew at five year terms each. So I get to go like, well, what happens after 20 years? Like, do I not have the option to renew? And so I'm curious from, from, you know, your perspective as a franchise attorney, what's the reasoning for kind of capping that, the number of renewals in an FDD? Yeah. So generally there's two different ways renewals have been structured. It used to be that you just, when you renewed your franchise agreement, you were just extending the term of your franchise agreement. Today, it's more common that when you renew, you're signing a new franchise agreement with usually an addendum. There's no initial franchise fee. There's no uh, you know, site selection and stuff like that because it's already right. happened. 
usually no initial training, et cetera. But um, like McDonald's is a great example of the former where 40, 50 years ago, you signed a franchise agreement and you've renewed it, renewed it. And then it came time at the end. And um, technically McDonald's could just reacquire your, your business. Um, it's, it's over. <laughs> there, there is an end to franchising. That's ultimately. scary. Um, however, you really have to think why, why the franchisor is selling franchises in the first place. And it's because they have structured their business as a franchise. Mm-hmm. They don't yeah. want to own and operate. McDonald's doesn't want to own and operate 33,000 McDonald's locations <laughs> around the world. Right. Right. They don't want that kind of liability. Although, yeah. I mean, they have it anyway, but <laughs> they, they, they want to shift that and, and continue to grow through franchising. Um, and that's almost always the goal of franchisors. There have been franchisors that have used franchising to expand. And then at the end of the terms, you know, they, everyone renews and renews and then they're done and the franchisor reacquires the assets and operates corporate locations. Um, it happens, right? Starbucks used to have franchises. They no longer have franchises. Yeah, it's all that's a good point. It's a good um, point. I mean, it's they're not just going to take it back. You know, they don't just own your assets at the end of your franchise uh, term. You know, I mean, McDonald's is different because they own the real estate and everything. Yeah. But um, if you have a uh, I, I don't know, like a, a service business, like a tree servicing business. Like they don't just acquire your trucks at the end. Right. They have to buy Yeah, because you own them. You. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. I mean, um, that was just a question that uh, it always kind of surprised me how often that question came up. But, you know, something else I want to get your thoughts on um, is, you know, the franchise agreement itself. So an FDD is going to have an exhibit in it that gives you a sample of the franchise agreement that you would be signing, correct? Yes. So you get the chance to review the franchise agreement well in advance of, you know, ever having to think about signing the franchise agreement. I would say the majority of people, unless they've been involved in franchising and have bought, you know, franchises in the past, their initial reaction when they read a franchise agreement is, holy shit, this is very one-sided. The franchisor can do like anything they want to do. And, you know, I have like really no power in all of this. Um, as, as an attorney that represents franchisors, but I know you'll also, you know, review agreements for prospective franchisees if there's no conflict and, you know, give them your thoughts based on all the different franchise agreements you've seen. Like why do, why do franchisors structure their agreements that way? Yeah, there's a lot of reasons. Um, primarily, well, I'm drafting the FDD in the franchise agreement, and I represent the franchisor, so <laughs> I'm, I'm looking out for their interests. But um, <laughs> ultimately, from a business perspective, um, you know, you, the franchisee is buying the franchisor's business model, yep. and it's supposed to make money. They're essentially buying an investment that is supposed to generate revenue for them, they haven't created that concept. They haven't, you know, they, they have no um, a goodwill built up in the franchisor's trademarks. Uh, and so you know, for the franchisor, they have a serious interest in making sure that their businesses are all uniform 
that everyone is playing by the rules and that nobody is reducing the value of their intellectual property, or I, I should just say damaging their brand. Right. hundred percent. Right. So that's why it's, it's so one sided and cause it's, it's not really a mutual agreement. It's not, it's not. And, and I get into negotiability all the time with people and, that's yeah, you can the, negotiate minor things, but you're you're not going to negotiate how the franchise system operates or how the model is because right. this is their model. Take it or leave it. If you think that you can do better with your own trash removal company over here, just just go do it. Go do that. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it it still blows my mind to this day. Like how many people will invest in a franchise and then. I almost like from day one think that they know better and, and they can, you know, do it differently and they just don't follow the system. So, you know, what I would tell someone when they're kind of looking at a franchise agreement, feeling like it's very one-sided, I'd say, yeah, you know, it is kind of one-sided. I, I think all the reasoning you gave is very valid. And when people stop to think about it that way, I think for most people that makes a lot of sense. But what I also tell people is I, I really, I ask them a question. I say, well, if you buy a franchise, whether it's this particular franchise or another one, like what is your intent? Are you going to come into it with the intentions of being successful, of following the system of, you know, doing what the franchisor tells you they've learned works over the years. And, and, you know, most people are going to say, well, yeah, of course. And so I say, well, then you don't have anything to worry about with the franchise mm -hmm. agreement. Like the franchise agreement is there to protect the franchisor, but it's also there to protect all of the franchisees that are doing the things they should be doing in their business, following the system, representing their brand the right way. Because the, the, there's so many benefits to franchising. One potential con to franchising is that, you know, if you're on the East Coast running your franchise business beautifully and creating an amazing reputation for the brand in your area, some jackass franchisee in California could be running the brand through the mud, make national headlines, and now all of a sudden your business suffers from that and you didn't do anything wrong. At that point, you want a franchisor that has a franchise agreement that allows them to take action and yeah. you know get rid of that franchisee in California, right? And, and then do some damage control. So what I always yeah. tell people is like, unless you're coming into this thinking, hey, I'm probably not going to follow the system. I'm probably going to just try to buck the system and do things my own way. Then then you should be worried about a one-sided franchise agreement. And also, you should probably really consider whether a franchise is, is a good fit for you or not. And I think once people think about it that way, they're like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And the other thing, and like you could probably speak to this better than me. I've worked for franchisors. Like, I've never worked for a franchisor that like had someone that they paid to sit around and like look for reasons to throw the book at a franchisee. Like most franchisors are hoping they don't have to like, you know, call up a franchisee and take action, even if it's something that the franchise agreement allows them to do. They will if they need mm -hmm. to, but like most are not looking for reasons to, to do that. It's, it's a partnership at the end of the day, but that's, yeah. that's my thoughts. Yeah, well, and I, I explain item three litigation the same way. So item three of the FDD for the listeners is where the franchisor has to disclose the past 10 years of litigation for the franchisor, parent company, affiliates, um, and a host of, of other agents and, and related parties and, and the people in item two, the leadership, um, any litigation has to be disclosed in there. Yep. And so you will often see 
litigation, arbitration matters between the franchisor and its franchisees. And I, I, I really had to wrap my head around that when I was learning franchising years ago, because I would mm-hmm. see litigation and my first thought was like, Oh no, no, I'm not going to let them buy this franchise. They can, they can get sued and it can, it can, it can all yeah, they the have line. been sued. Yeah. Yeah. Well, then I started representing franchisors more and more and, uh, and worked with Jason on some of his franchisor matters. And I, I handle all of our firm's litigation and arbitration now, but, um, I, I, I would see, you don't just pull the trigger and file an action against somebody. Like they have to be doing something that is causing you significant harm yeah. or putting your franchise system at risk yeah. for one reason or another. And uh, so in reviewing FDDs for people, I will often, I'll see litigation and I'll be very blunt. I'll be like, yeah, no, I'm not concerned about this at all. Um, I'll give you an example. I think two, three years ago, I reviewed the Martinizing Dry Cleaning FDD mm-hmm. for a woman who is buying three of them in South Carolina. Okay. And I remember going through it and I got down to item three and there were nine pages of wow. litigation. And like, it was concise, not like these long descriptions. Like so there's a lot of different suits, suits, a lot, a lot of litigation um, against existing franchisees, former franchisees. And I, 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 I was like, ah, this is, this is real scary. This is the most litigation I've ever seen in an FDD. How do I explain this? And so I'm looking through it and I'm like, man, this is all like starting at this central period of time. Well, it turns out I actually got on the phone with the franchisor's counsel and said, Hey man, can you explain this litigation to me? I'm representing a buyer and it looks like if she buys this franchise, you're just eventually going to sue her. <laughs> right. She's going to be on the 10th page of litigations yeah. in next year's FDD. <laughs> yeah. So he's, he's explaining it and it made perfect sense. The franchise system had been around for so long because they're they're like the OG of yeah yeah they've franchises. been around forever and don't they don't they acquire a bunch of like small independent yes. franchises yep. and kind of convert them? I can imagine that would mm-hmm. result so in what more had litigation. Was I forget when? Uh, sometime in the past, like ten years, I guess they were acquired by a private equity group mm. who came in, bought the franchise system, and as they are are doing their due diligence, they find there's so many franchisees out of compliance. So they just, they, they were franchisees that their terms had expired. They just kept operating. Um, <laughs> or they had just, they stopped paying royalties in like year two. And, and the, the previous franchisor had just never done anything about it. Jesus. Just kind of let them keep going. Um, and so th- this private equity group came in and cleaned up shop. Yeah. They got rid of a ton of non-compliant franchisees and ultimately when you look at the numbers in item 20 uh, where all the numbers of the franchisees are it wasn't like a huge percentage it was a very small percentage of their total body of franchisees but um they they grouped them all together in termination actions royalty collections all kinds of things and uh ultimately i was able to explain to her if you buy this franchise and played by the rules they're going to protect your interests. That's right. Making sure that this franchisee on the other side of your state is paying the same royalties that you are hundred percent advertising the same way you are that they are bound as much to their contract as you are. 
Yeah. And that's how you build uniformity in a franchise system. And that protects the value of your investment. No doubt. That's, that's a great point and a really good example. Cause you know, like you mentioned earlier, like, you know, you shouldn't like, if you're going to hire a franchise attorney, well, let's back up. If you're going to hire an attorney to review a franchise agreement, because you're considering investing in a franchise, like, first of all, make sure it's a franchise attorney, someone that reads these things like, like yourself, you see tons of these agreements. So you know, what's normal, what's not, you know, if you saw a really big red flag, uh, it would pop out at you. Whereas someone that's an attorney, but not versed in franchising, they'd probably read a franchise agreement. If it's the first one they've ever read, they'd be like, yeah, this is very one-sided. Don't sign it. (laughs) You know? So first of all, get a franchise attorney if you're going to use an attorney to review the agreement. But secondly, like have the right expectations in doing that. It's more so and correct me if you feel differently about this, but my advice to the people I work with is like hire an attorney if you want to have it reviewed, but it's more so for your own understanding and the purpose of clarity, not so that, you know, they can carve up a franchisor's agreement and you send them back a red line version, you know, asking for all of these changes, because as you were just saying, franchisors need uniformity. They need to keep all their franchisees on the same playing field. And at the end of the day, like if you've got a franchisor that's willing to make a bunch of adjustments for your agreement, like, do you really think you're that special? No, they've probably cut deals with every other franchisee and, and who knows like what's going on out there. And that's a slippery yeah. slope for a franchisor. And it's also like, yeah. just from a logistic standpoint, it's hard for them to remember like what deal they cut with who. It's a nightmare. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's a nightmare. So it's like, no. Well, there, it, there's some nuances with negotiation. So there know, are. I, I, I largely tell everyone that they're non-negotiable. Um, they so where, where are some areas that you can negotiate? Yeah. So and here's, here's where I have a unique perspective as representing franchisors because yeah. I get the, the, the sales and development folks, they, they get the requests from the prospective franchisees, attorney, all red lines, addenda, and sometimes it's one or two things. Sometimes it's 50 things. Yeah. Um, I think the worst I've ever seen is, is uh, an attorney that took the PDF of the FDD, converted it to Word, and redlined the actual FDD items and said, these are the changes that we want. I said, you don't understand how this works. <laughs> Definitely not a franchise attorney, right? Like this is not even the agreement yeah, yeah. that they would be signing. Yeah, yeah exactly. So this <laughs> is like great. disclosures. And that I, I is just responded funny. with like the kid gloves on and was like, you yeah, know, this is a heavily federally regulated document. I can't change it. Which <laughs> <So, laughs> is mostly true. Right. But, yeah. um, so they, they just send them to me and I get them yep. all day. It's probably like 40% of what I do is responding to requests for negotiations. Yep. And um, which is a great thing because it means my franchisors are selling franchises. That's right. But um, I, I get everything from, well, we want royalties waived for the first 12 months to, we want, we want to negotiate the franchise fee to like real small, like we want, we want to adjust the liquidated damages provision to a shorter period of time. And that's and, a pretty common one, I would think. It is. Yeah. And, and I will say that I do not just hit the deny button. I don't reject every attempt at negotiation. Now, if they hired their brother's family law attorney from six years ago, because it's the only attorney that they have any, any connection to, and this guy sends me a list of 50 changes, my first response to the, the sales and development person is like, no. 
I'm not even, I'm not, I don't have the time to address 50 potential changes because they'll want me to address each one line right. by line. Individually. And explain, yes, no, yes, no, maybe, yes, no. Um, or often it's, this is not necessary. Like, why are you t- asking me to change this fee? It, this is what the fee is. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. So if it's, if it's just way too much, I just respond and say, no, not, we're not going to agree to any of these. And there might be some reasonable stuff in there, but I'm not going to get to it when there's 50 or a hundred. That's right. Requests. But on the other hand, if you get three or four reasonable I will look requests, at them and then I'll you can look at them. address them. I'll right. start, you know, number one, they want to, um, like a common one, they want to make sure that when they renew their franchise, the territory is the same. Sure. I have absolutely no problem with granting them the same territory upon renewal. I have standard language. I slip it into an addendum, send it over. We're good to go. Um, sometimes a little bit trickier, they will ask to have the same royalty fee upon renewal, which in 10 years, the royalty fee may be higher. Sure. Um, it could be higher in, in two or three years, but they're locked in at their rate. Until they renew the end of their term. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, those I'll have to talk with the client and, and, you know, and make sure we're on the same level and but I'll often say no. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But uh, things like the franchise fee, they'll, they'll ask to negotiate the franchise fee. What they don't understand is that the franchisor in their next FDD has to disclose the, the range of franchise fees that they sold franchises at for the prior fiscal year. Yeah. And so if they give this guy, uh, you know, say $50,000 franchise fee, they sell it to this guy for 30, they actually have to say our franchise fee ranges from 30,000 to 50,000. And then they have to say in 2020, we sold John Smith a franchise for $30,000. Yeah. And good luck to John Smith at the next conference. Uh, he's probably not going to have any drinks bought. Yeah. He's probably not going to have any drinks bought for him by the other franchisees. They're going to be like, you're 20 grand richer than us on the franchise fee. You pick up the tab. You're paying for drinks. Yeah. 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 But so that's what I was getting at earlier where I said like some of this is a slippery slope for franchisors Mm -hmm. because once they do start wheeling and dealing, they've got to actually disclose it. Now, what I know from doing franchise development and from, you know, buying some franchises myself where most franchisors will not negotiate with you on the, the franchise fee. Some may be willing to negotiate with you a little bit on the territory that you're getting for that franchise fee. Now, I don't know if you would advise your clients to do this or not, but you know, in the past we would in some cases sweeten the deal a little bit by, you know, if we had a territory that was 125,000 households, Hey, we'll give you 135,000. We'll add another zip code or two that you think would be a, a nice addition to your territory and the franchise fee doesn't change. And to my knowledge, that's not something that has to be disclosed, correct? It does not. Yeah. yeah. And you can, especially if those additional zip codes are not likely going to be a, a key part of a neighboring territory. Exactly. You don't want right? to, yeah, you don't want to shoot yourself in the foot and take away what could be a, a sellable territory in the future and make it unsellable by giving. But there, you can be very strategic and like in any negotiation, like if you're the franchisor, if you can come back and show that you've given a little bit in a way that still makes sense for you, but makes the prospective franchisee feel like, you know, they've gotten a little bit something out of their ask. Mm-hmm. Usually you end up getting a deal done and everyone's happy and, and moves forward. Yeah. So there's, there's stuff like that, that, you know, I'm, I'm a hundred percent on board with pushing through. Um, another one is commonly, 
So for, for decades, your transfer fee, your renewal fee were these flat fees. And now there's this trend in franchising for the renewal fee to be 25% or 50% of the then current, current franchise yeah. fee. Yeah. And I'm not okay with that. When I draft FDDs, it's a flat rate. And I yeah. mean, flat rate, it's like either five grand or 10 grand to renew the franchise. And I mean, don't tell my franchise or clients this because they get really pissed off. But I tell the franchisee or the, the candidate, like, what are you getting at renewal? Right? Nothing. Like they're not training you. There's no site selection. There's no broker fee they have to pay. They, they, their costs are very minimal. And I can yeah. tell you because I draft the legal documents, it's not going to cover the legal documents. It's I mean, right. you're talking a few hundred bucks for like, right. Yeah. Cause you're probably document. working off of templates for the most part. Um, exactly. with renewals. Yeah. So I, I haven't seen as many of the uh, renewals that are uh, structured as a percentage of the then current franchise fee. I've seen it with transfer fees. Um, and like the last franchisor I worked for, you know, like we wanted to make it as easy as possible for a franchisee that wanted to sell their business, regardless of the reason they wanted to sell. To, to sell it, right? To get a more engaged franchisee in their place. So we wanted to remove as many obstacles as we could from then to sell. So even though the agreement said it was, I think uh, 50% is either 25 or 50% of the then current franchise fee was the transfer fee. Uh, we cut that in half. That was just standard procedure, right? I was involved in numerous transfers Every single one, we cut that fee in half. Uh, just because. I usually it, prefer for it to be all, uh, two separate flat fees. One flat fee if it's to an existing franchisee in the system that they're selling mm -hmm. to, and a slightly higher flat fee if they're selling to someone outside the system. Because yeah. then they will have training costs. They got to properly disclose the guy, definitely True. sign a new franchise agreement. He's got to be trained. Yeah, he has no experience, and and there's a little bit more documentation involved. So I I think that's reasonable. Yeah, um, but that I makes did sense. I pushed back on on one uh, the other day. Um, the other day it was probably a month or two ago where my client was buying I think four or five units, and so they're signing a, a multi-unit development agreement, but it was mm -hmm. all for one business, right? So when when I draft a multi-unit in, in the service space and it's for one business, they're signing one franchise agreement. However, there are others out there, service-based, where you're signing five different franchise agreements. That's how we so did it's it. One business. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I, I pushed back and said, there's nothing in here that, that clarifies what your renewal fee is going to be. Are you paying five different renewal fees? And they're all 50% of the then current franchise fee. So in 10 years, if the franchise fee is $100,000, you've got a $50,000 renewal fee times potentially times five. So $250,000 to renew your franchises. Yeah, that across stings. The board. That stings. I pushed back the franchisor's counsel. Actually, their in-house counsel, they responded and said, we're not going to budge on that for uniformity reasons. It's an additional profit center for us. Whoa. <clears throat> so that's an example not, of like maybe I, a red I, I, flag. I told the client, I was like, listen, that's, I mean, I can't blame them, but that is not how I would have communicated it. <laughs> well, and you can also tell your client in that case, like, I don't run into many franchisors that look at renewal fees as a profit center for them. 
Yeah. So mm-hmm. can't blame your franchisor for wanting to be profitable, but that's not like very common yeah. within franchising. It's, it's to very see it done rare. That way. I think yeah. they were newer to franchising. I don't think they really understood. Yeah. Um, I mean, when are, I was there are a couple of registration states that actually limit those fees, like in the state of Washington, um, their franchise act says that the transfer fee cannot exceed the franchisor's actual costs in the transfer. Hmm. So if the transfer fee is 10 grand, but the franchisor only incurred $2,500 in costs, that's all the franchisees required to pay. That's interesting. There are a couple other states like that, California, some of the other registration states. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't see why you'd want to have your renewal fees so high, right? I mean, because look, at the end of the day, the franchisor has the option to renew a franchisee or not, or like to allow them to renew. So assuming it's a good franchisee that you want to renew, why in the world would you want to make it more difficult for them to renew? They're paying um, you five, 10 more years of royalties from day one. Right. There isn't and like, even a ramp up period. Yeah. And if you, if they you didn't renew, them, yeah, right? if they like didn't if renew the because market. it's, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> if they didn't renew because it's too expensive, then you got to go out and find someone else to buy that area, uh, train them, hope that they're going to be as good, if not better than the previous franchisee, where it's like, you've got a known entity that's been a good producer, like make it as easy and as painless as possible for them to renew so they can keep on doing what they've been doing for you. So, I mean, my last franchisor that I worked for service-based, we did a lot of multi-unit or multi-territory deals. It was a a separate agreement for each territory, but the renewal fee was like, you know, 1500 bucks per territory. So like when someone went to renew, like, I mean, you'd have maybe five or six grand in renewal fees. It wasn't usually anything that was a sticking point, but, um, Mm. yeah, I did. I did always kind of wonder like why to me, a multi-unit development agreement just didn't make sense for that type of business. That's more like brick and mortar opening multiple retail locations in my mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's how I've been drafting them. Um, like I, I, I represent smash my trash. And I, I drafted their FDD and set it up such that, I mean, you could under their franchise agreement, you get a territory of 200,000 people. It's one territory, or you get a territory, you get 10 territories up to 2 million people and um, a couple things that change in, in between there, but it's all, it's all one business, right? You're yeah. running one business. You have one yep. office, you have one sales team, you have one accountant, yeah. Um, you don't have, you know, for 10 territories, you don't have 10 addresses, nope. any of that. So it makes no sense. So I, I call it a multi-territory offering as opposed to like a multi-unit Unit. offering. Yeah. To me, that line of thinking makes a lot of sense knowing what I know about these service-based businesses. Um, well, man, this has been awesome. Your insight's been been great. I love nerding out on this type of stuff. Um, I mean, any any final words of advice? I mean, a lot of the people listening to this podcast are either small business owners, many of which probably franchisees, but a lot of the, a lot of the people listening are aspiring entrepreneurs. They know they want to get into business for themselves. They haven't quite figured out what's the best way for them to do that yet. So, you know, for anyone out there that may be considering a franchise uh, investigating franchise businesses, any final words of wisdom or or advice for, you know, folks that are in that position right now? Yeah. If, if you are 
wanting the freedom that comes from being an entrepreneur, but you've got no idea what kind of business to run. There are tons of franchise opportunities out there, restaurants to children base, education to really niche service stuff. Um, everything from martial arts to baking studios yeah. to wineries, breweries, everything. Yeah, it's like um, the options are endless. It really is. Christmas lights on outsides of people's houses, like <laughs> yeah. everything. There's there's a franchise out there for everything. Yep. And if they have that entrepreneurial itch, chances are that there's a great franchise opportunity out there for them. And I I, I mean. I've been saying it for years. Now is the time. Now is the time. Now is the time. The pandemic has absolutely not changed that answer. Now no. is the time no. to get in on it. Yeah. I think it, especially right now, like this is a fantastic time uh, for a lot of reasons, probably don't even have time to get into all of those reasons right now, but yeah, the timing is very, very good. And, and there's a franchise out there for pretty much anyone that's serious about getting into business for themselves and, you know, the other thing that I would add on to your advice, which I think is great advice, is that you don't necessarily have to gravitate towards a franchise that you have experience in that particular industry. It's one of the beautiful things about franchising. They'll teach you what you need to know. So, you know, don't think like, hey, I don't know anything about, you know, teaching children that you couldn't get involved in some sort of a childhood education franchise. Um, so again, there's something out there for pretty much anyone. It's that's yeah, why it's so fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can do anything. And then you see some of these guys that have multi-brand portfolios, and it's like you know, restoration business, you know, Nashville hot chicken franchise. Yeah, <laughs> everything in between. So it's, it's so cool. fascinating, man. I, I used to get the multi-unit franchisee uh, magazine, and I used to love reading the different profiles of people. Uh, you know, that have like 23 KFCs, 14 great clips, 19 TCBY frozen yogurts, uh, and, and seeing like the, Shaquille O'Neal, 505 guys, restaurants or whatever. Does he have that many? <laughs> Good God. At one point, I think he did. I was yeah. Still he's, I know he's been pretty that. big into franchising. Peyton Manning has got a bunch of yeah. Papa John's or did at least, yeah. uh, Drew Brees owns a bunch of Jimmy John's and he's actually involved as a franchisor with a concept yeah. called walk-ons. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, man. Fascinating, fascinating the world of franchising. So, mm-hmm. Hey man, I got four questions. This is what I call my lightning round. So I ask these questions to everyone that comes on the podcast. Uh, we can run through those real quick and then I want you to tell people where they can connect with you and where they can learn more about uh, your services, your firm services, Uh, But before that, uh, first question of the lightning round is simply, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Yeah, um, I had a a teacher. I don't think think it was a professor. I think it was like teacher, like high Mm -hmm. school, Mm -hmm. who shared with uh, my class the the Wayne Gretzky quote, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Love that. And um, I, I, I hear it time and time again. I try to practice it. If you never ask, you never know especially when it comes to things like negotiations. Mm. You don't know until you, until you ask. Heck yeah. That's probably the best advice. I love that. Uh, do you have any sort of a morning routine, something that you try to do every morning to prime yourself for a successful day? 
Yeah, I, I find that um, having a real painful morning routine really sets you up for success. So I have three kids, the oldest being four years old, All right. uh, the youngest being eight months old. So All right. um, if I have slept through the whole night, which happens sometimes, yeah, then wake up 6, 7 a.m. to the first kid. And then before you know, all three are up and I'm trying to get them up and out the door. Two of them are in preschool. Um, finally get everyone settled. Everyone's eating food, cleaned up. Rest of the day is easy from there. Right. And I walk into the home office. So, um, I, I used to be like this 5am guy up, you know, planning out my day and had this whole routine. And, uh, and now my kids are my morning routine, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have it any other way. Heck yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's interesting how, uh, routines will change. Like we have a daughter that'll be four tomorrow, actually, as of the time of recording this and, and a two month old. So yeah, there's a lot of, uh, nights without a whole lot of sleep and then pretty chaotic mornings, but to your point, a chaotic morning or, or, uh, you know, at least if that's the hardest part of your day, like wrangling the kids into whatever they need to be doing, like the rest of the day's downhill from there. Um, it gets, it gets easier. So that's cool. I do pretty significantly block my schedule out. So I think that's probably, that would be my time blocking. Yeah. Yeah. First thing I do is sit down, look at the day, get everything squared away. Yeah. I think that's important for sure. Lots of coffee. Lots and lots. It's, of it's necessary. Check out Black Rifle Coffee. Um, yeah, I yeah. started getting it delivered. It's good stuff. Um, what book are you reading right now? Oh, right now, um, I am. Uh, I kind of decided for twenty twenty one. I want to sharpen my negotiation skills. Uh, I do a lot of it in litigation and and resolving disputes. So I picked up a couple of books on negotiation. Some older, some new. Um, but I've got, uh, right now I'm reading start with no. Okay. And after that, I've got getting to yes. And then, then I'm going to pick up never split the difference. So I've read getting to yes and never split the difference for negotiating, never split the difference. Chris Voss, like, I don't think there's anyone better to learn from, uh, and talk about negotiating at, at high stakes levels. Um, what, yeah. what he did here, here's another one. Check out uh, Doesn't Hurt to Ask by Trey Gowdy. Okay. That's yeah. for negotiating. That's, that's a good one. All right. Um, cool. So last question is, what is your definition of freedom and are you living it? Yeah, I think my definition of freedom is having control over yourself, your life, your destiny, Um, and that can look like financial freedom that Mm -hmm. can look like work life balance freedom. Uh, it can look like a lot of different things. Um, but I think it ultimately comes down to having control and not being controlled by others. I like Um, that. So to an extent I have freedom, you know, I, I, I I mean, my kids have some control over me, but (laughs) (laughs) no doubt, but, uh, but you know, I love them. So I love them have it, but I mean, it, I have con- control and freedom because I have my own business. I have my own law firm. I have yeah. employees and, and my law partner and we kind of, we, we sail our ship where we want to, uh, to an, another extent, I guess I don't. Cause I'm also, you know, I have clients and sure. I, I work for the clients. So, um, that's a, a tug and pull, but most of my clients are really, really great at, uh, at respecting boundaries and, and things like that. So 
Yeah, I think I am moving it. Yeah, awesome, man. Well, I love what you're doing. Appreciate you making the time to drop in with us. Where can people connect with you, learn more about your firm? Uh, tell us tell us where people can find you. Yeah, I don't think I ever said it earlier. Our firm is franchise.law. So you just type in www.franchise.law and there we are. But Beautiful. otherwise, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just look up Jonathan Barber or uh, franchise.law or um, Instagram at franchise lawyer or um, Clubhouse. If you want to jump on the Clubhouse? Yeah, man. Franchise lawyer on Clubhouse. Clubhouse has and, been uh, coming up a lot on the podcast here lately. Um, and I've yeah, like, yeah, I get I've on connected. There and drop free legal knowledge. I don't even yeah. I don't send anyone invoices. I know that's, that's what's crazy about it is like people are just sharing stuff that they would normally charge money to share. Uh, like I've yeah. connected with so many, like I think probably four out of my most recent five podcast interviews have been people I connected with on clubhouse. Um, nice. It's that's cool. Awesome. Yeah. It's awesome, man. Mm -hmm. So I'll see you on clubhouse, but appreciate you making time to come on the path to freedom podcast with me. And uh, appreciate you sharing all your knowledge, man. This is fascinating stuff. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. I enjoyed it. I think the listeners are going to get a ton of value. Absolutely. I have no doubt about that. All right, Jonathan. Thanks, man. We really appreciate it. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining me today and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll know when a new episode is released. You can also check me out on my website at www.path2frdm.com. And if you want more information about franchising or just want to say hello, feel free to contact me at Wes at Path2FRDM.com. Thanks again. Now go drop in.